Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 for our scripture reading. Romans 3 verses 21 to 31. That is our scripture reading. And our sermon passage is taken from Galatians chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. So again, our scripture reading is Romans 3, 21 to 31. And our scripture, uh, sorry, our, our sermon passage is Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. This word is the word that many of our forebears suffered and died for to ensure that we would have copies of it in our own language. This word is precious. It was precious to them. They were willing, some of them, many of them, to go to the stake and be burned. It's precious to us, or at least it should be. So please give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. Romans 3, 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness in the present time so that He might, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now turning to Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This ends the reading of God's most precious, most holy, and true word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that we are justified by faith, but that it is not our faith that justifies us. It is the instrument of justification. By faith we apprehend, we lay hold of the one who justifies us by His works. We pray that You would teach us again and again this precious, this precious doc, doctrine because we are prone to forget it. We are prone to leave it behind. We are prone 
O Lord, to add unto this doctrine works, our works. We are so prone, dear Lord, to fall into the trap of thinking that we earn our salvation. And so we pray, Lord, that you please teach us again what it means that we are justified by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been on trial. Perhaps it's possible. Perhaps you had to stand before a court or a judge because of a speeding ticket of some sort. Or perhaps it's been something more serious than that. Certainly there are believers in Christ who have faced a judge, who've gone on trial for a crime. Perhaps you have been in the position of being among the jury for a trial. How does a person dress? Well, you've seen this, no doubt, in dramas on television and movies, but probably also trial proceedings that have been televised. When someone is first arraigned, that person might be in a jumpsuit. Uh, For many years, I think it's changed more recently. Often you'll see someone in a mugshot who has a a white towel wrapped around their necks so as not to prejudice uh, the person. And so all who are arrested would have that towel wrapped around their necks regardless of what they might be wearing underneath it. But usually for the trial proceedings, the accused is sitting there in a suit or a tie, if he's a male or if she is a, a woman or a female, be sitting in some sort of dress attire. And we know that a person on trial should not be judged by his appearance, but on whether or not that person committed a crime. And so dressing up in a suit, it helps to prevent being judged by appearance. If a person came in wearing something that was not very dressy, perhaps indicative of their lifestyle prior to that, I was thinking of of those who might be in gangs and they were wearing something that was consistent with the gang that they were a part of, that certainly would have probably a detrimental impact on their trial. And so dressing in a suit, it helps a person to prevent being judged by appearance. But dressing up also shows respect for the court. But I think that there's another reason as well. There's another reason why someone might dress up before going before a judge. A person on trial wants to project, they want to declare to those around them, to the jury, to the judge, by the way that they look, that they are innocent of all charges. They want to justify themselves by their mode of dress. Now our passage this morning from Galatians 2, it it deals with this human tendency. It deals with our tendency to try and dress ourselves up with our good works. Now all of you, if you're members of this church, you've heard the question, if you died tonight... Would you go to heaven? Would Jesus let you in? And if you're a member of this church, you answered yes. And then there was a follow-up question to that question in response. Well, on what basis should Christ let you into his heaven? And all of you who are members of this church, you, you either did answer correctly or you got around to it. Not on your, the basis of your own works should Christ let you into his heaven, but because of his works on your behalf. But our tendency is to point to the things that we've done. Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I've, I've helped people. If I see someone stranded on the side of the road with a flat tire, I'll stop and, and help them to get their spare on or help to pump up the tire or do whatever I can. I'm a good person. But you see, 
you all have a court date with the supreme judge of the universe. And you will want to go before him with your best suit on. You will want to show him that you are innocent of all charges against you. But if you stand before God in clothing purchased it by your own good works, the best that you will be able to come up with is a suit made out of dirty diapers that you pulled out of the trash can of your so-called good works. Your attempt at justifying yourself in this way only deepens your problem because the things that you call good works will testify to God of your sinfulness. And so if you stand before your most high and holy judge in those clothes, you will be condemned. Your only hope is to stand before your judge with clothes given to you by someone else. And so as we work our way through the sermon today, I just ask you to keep this thought in front of you. You are justified in God's sight, not because of what you have done, but only because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Say that again. I could probably say it four or five times. We need to have it drilled in our heads, myself included. You are justified in God's sight not because of what you have done, but only because of what Christ has done on your behalf. I've divided the sermon into three points. Believe it or not, two verses, but I've got a three point sermon today. The first point is an act of God's free grace. The second, he pardons all our sins. And the third, he accepts us as righteous in his sight. If you've got the shorter catechism memorized or close to it, you'll probably recognize the points of the sermon. The first, again, an act of God's free grace. The second, he pardons all our sins. And the third, he accepts us as righteous in his sight. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, an act of God's free grace. Paul writes in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What is Paul countering there? This notion that because they're Jews by birth, they are automatically justified. They're automatically right with God. They're in God's house. They're part of his people. And so Paul is expanding on the point that he was trying to make in the previous verses regarding his controversy with Peter. Peter and Paul got crosswise with one another there in Galatia. They were at odds with one another. Paul will say later in this letter that he rebuked Peter to his face because of what Peter was doing. For a Jew like Paul, prior to his conversion, the world was divided into two classes of people. On the one hand, you had Jews. And on the other hand, you had sinners. Not even Gentiles so much. I mean, Gentile was was synonymous with sinner. And so he and Peter, they were born into God's chosen people, Israel. They were both Jews. They had all of the the privileges of being the people of God and what that entailed. The Jews had the law of God. They had his word. They were his special people. And the Gentiles were not. But in Christianity, with the coming of Jesus Christ, with his birth, with his death, with his resurrection from the dead, with his ascension on high... This dividing line between Jews and Gentiles had been erased, or it should have been. It should have been completely obliterated. And it was for Peter when he first came to Antioch. 
He didn't think then that it was necessary to keep the ceremonial law for the salvation of his Gentile brothers. And he proved this because he was willing to eat with them and fellowship with them without observing those dietary laws that were part of the ceremonial law. By his actions, Peter demonstrated that the Gentiles were saved without needing to keep the ceremonial law. But a change came over Peter when some men who were sent by James came up to Antioch And at that point, Peter's behavior shifted. He began to treat the Gentile believers not like brothers, but like sinners. He wouldn't sit with them. He he refused to even eat with them until they Judaized, until they began to keep the ceremonial law. And so Peter's act of refusing to, to fellowship with these Gentile brothers and sisters was a silent statement that there was more that they must do to be saved than simply believing in Jesus Christ. They had to add to Christ's finished work, which is unfinished, if it needs to be added to, their own works. So Paul's point in our passage through this letter is that it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are all sinners, and you all get saved in the same way, through faith in Jesus Christ. He makes this clear in verse 16. This verse is the first time in Galatians that Paul uses the word justify. And in rapid succession, he uses the word three more times in this verse. The first part of verse 16 reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a radical way of thinking for a Jewish person. Because their lives are caught up with keeping the law. And the ceremonial law, above all. Doing the works of the law, Paul is saying, cannot justify sinners. Why? Because it's impossible uh, for sinners to do the works of the law. You've got to do the works of the law on the one hand, but you can't. Not perfectly. You can't keep the works of the law, the things that God has commanded you to do in such a way that they become acceptable offerings in His sight because our best good works are tainted with sin. And so Paul is saying you were only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this clear in the second clause of verse 16 when he says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Paul is saying here that it is the same for the Jew as it is for the Gentile. Justification is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. There aren't two plans of salvation, one for the Jew and another for the Gentile. There is only one way to be saved. Now, we've been tossing this word around, justify, justified, justification, but what is it? What is justification? Well, we all understand this to a certain degree. When someone comes at you and starts accusing you of doing something that they don't like or they think is wrong, you you very quickly start to justify yourself. Well, no, 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 that's not what I did, or that's not what I meant, or whatever. You become a very gifted lawyer in those instances where someone is accusing you of doing something wrong. And sometimes it's a mistake on their part, and sometimes you really did do something wrong, you're just unwilling to admit it. But justification is, in this context, in a theological context, is the declaration in God's heavenly courtroom that you are righteous. 
In terms of doctrine, justification is a declaration before God that you're righteous. Now, how is this possible? We've already said this. Everyone's a sinner, right? We can't stand in God's courtroom and be declared righteous. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that word polluted, it is the most disgusting of the most disgusting kind of pollution. It's utter filth. Unlike us, God is perfect in every way, completely without sin, as holy as it's possible to be. And so the greatest works that we have ever, ever done, those things that we can look back on and be the most proud of, they are at best filthy rags compared to the Lord. Polluted rags. Excrement-covered rags. And Paul hints at this at the end of verse 16 when he quotes Psalm 143, verse 2. Because by, uh, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's the Old Testament talking about this. You can't be justified by works of the law. Why? Because our best good works are still tainted, are shot through with sin. They still have that nasty smell on them that we just can't quite wash out. So how then, if Paul can say that you're going to be justified before God, how is it possible that you can stand in God's courtroom and be declared righteous? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an act. If our good works, our righteous deeds are filthy in the sight of God, then being declared righteous must be a free gift from God. It's an alien righteousness, which means that it comes from outside of ourselves because we don't have it inherently or intrinsically. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is that surprise gift that you didn't know was coming to you on Christmas morning. It's, in doctrinal understanding, it is this gift that you get from your Heavenly Father, not because of anything that you have done. Rather, in spite of it, it's given to you simply because He loves you. Not because you've done anything to deserve His love. It's not possible for us to earn a declaration of being righteous. By God's grace, He freely declares you to be righteous. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon. He pardons all our sins. Another part of justification is that God pardons all of our sins. When God pardons our sins, it is as if they never occurred in the eyes of the law. In Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. A pardon is forgiveness of lawless deeds. It's clemency, mercy. Your sins have been covered or atoned for. 
When David wrote about his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he spoke of God's pardoning mercy. Verse 9 of Psalm 51 reads this way. It says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. God doesn't, David doesn't want God to look upon his sin. He wants those sins to be wiped off the face of the earth. He wants his slate washed clean. David asked the Lord not to look at his sin, but he also asked God to go to the books where his every sin was recorded and erase them so that there would be no record of his wrongdoing. Now, over the years, presidents of the U.S. have issued thousands of pardons to people in this country. The right of a president to issue pardons is guaranteed by the Constitution, but there have been at least two cases where people who have received a pardon from the president who have refused it. One case was the U.S., the United States versus Wilson in 1830, and the other was Burdick versus the U.S. in 1915. These men refused the presidential pardon that was offered to them. Why? Acceptance of a presidential pardon carries with it the admission of guilt. If you're not guilty, a pardon is unnecessary. And so for these men to have accepted it would be to imply that they were guilty, which they maintained that they were not. Now for someone who has been wrongfully convicted to accept a pardon and thereby admit guilt would be repulsive to these men. And, and in these particular cases, these men were willing to stand on the principle that they were not guilty. But in the case of your standing and my standing before the Lord, it's impossible to plead innocence. It's impossible. If you only ever committed one tiny little sin in the course of your entire lifetime, you would still stand condemned by the law. Because the law of God demands ultimate, absolute perfection. Even a believer's heart has the remnant of sin in it. So everything that you do, even if it's a random act of kindness, is marred by your own self-seeking sinful interest. And really, brothers and sisters, and I say this because I have this tendency myself, how often when you do something good, can you just not wait to tell somebody else about it? You can't wait. It's so difficult. But not only do you commit actual sins, you were also born into an estate of sin. And it's that estate of sin that results in the actual sins that flow out of it. You carry in you Adam's original sin. It's now become a part of your nature. It's like this, this, it wasn't there in the beginning. It wasn't there as the way that God created Adam and Eve. But it has attached itself to human nature in such a way that it cannot, it cannot be gotten rid of. It's gotten into the DNA, in a sense, of humanity. Because Adam was our representative in the garden. He was our federal head. And when he sinned, we all sinned in him. We fell with him when he fell. And so you cannot do things that will prove your righteousness because you aren't righteous. You cannot do things that make yourself righteous because the things that you will try to do to make yourself righteous will only prove that you are unrighteous. Your works will not save you. Does that mean there's no hope? It does not mean that there's no hope. There is hope. The Bible says that those who repent of their sins and believe 
will be forgiven their iniquities. Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Repentance involves a turning away from sin and a returning to the Lord. You stand before the Lord guilty of all charges. But if you repent of your sins, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, God promises to pardon you, to issue you a stay of execution, and let you out of prison. The sins that you have committed, of which you are guilty, will be erased from your legal record, and you will be cleared of all charges. God will remember your sins no more. If you repent and believe... And that brings us to the third point of our sermon. He accepts us as righteous in his sight. As we've seen, the the problem with a presidential pardon is that you can still carry the guilt of your wrongdoing forward with you. You basically have admitted, yes, I did this thing that was wrong, but the president pardoned me. And you can't touch me. But when you are justified by faith in Christ, God accepts you as righteous in his sight. God no longer sees you as guilty of your sins. He sees you as His beloved child. Because Jesus Christ lived and died for you. You've been adopted into His household. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, 21 says, For our sake He made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you are righteous in His sight. God regards you as sinless if you have faith in Jesus Christ. How is this possible? How are you suddenly righteous? Well, it is only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to you. His righteousness, His perfect keeping of the law of God has been counted as your own by faith. Now what does that word imputation mean? That's a fancy word. Some of you may know what it is. Some of you may not. It's a fancy word. It simply means it's been credited to your account. It's a banking term. It's a a legal term. It's a forensic term. But imagine that you are deeply in debt with no idea how in the world you're going to climb out of it. You're a a million dollars in debt. And you don't make more than $50,000 in a year. And you have bills to pay. You have a house payment. You have rent. How in the world are you going to get yourself out of that debt? Now, you could try to call the bank, try to get them to, to erase your debt, but they're not going to do it. But one day you open up your account on your phone and where there was close to a negative balance, you find that you have a million dollars in your account. And being at least a somewhat honest person, you decide to call the bank and tell them, no, something's wrong. Something has happened here. And now I've, the debt that I had has been cleared And they tell you that there's been no mistake, that the money that was put into your account, it belongs to you. You didn't earn this money by working at your job. It just showed up. 
it was imputed to your account. Now, there have been instances over the years where people wake up one morning, check their bank accounts, and suddenly discover that they're a millionaire. And then a few hours later, they find out that it was a banking error, in fact. And all of a sudden, they're back to where they were before. But not with in the case of our justification. Not in that case. Your debt has been erased. But here's the other kicker to it. The debt has been erased by Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. But, but, but your bank account doesn't just sit at zero where it once was negative zero. Your bank account has a positive balance in it now. Because not only is Christ's perfect sacrifice counted as, as enough to, to wash your slate clean, His perfect record of keeping God's law throughout His life, in, in obedience in every way, is credited, is imputed to your account. So you're, name it, in this, in this analogy, you're a millionaire, or maybe that's not enough, you're a billionaire, perhaps that is not, not enough, you're a trillionaire in God's economy of justification. In other words, there is not enough that you can spend your money on in this life to get yourself back to a negative balance in your account. In this economy, not necessarily the reality of your checking account right now. Jesus Christ, who has all of the riches in the world, who is perfectly rich in righteousness, gave it to you. He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every respect just as we are, yet he was without sin. This was possible because Jesus is fully God as well as fully man. He never sinned. Not once did he sin. And because he is God, he is perfectly righteous. And so he was able to keep all of the requirements of the law, all of them. He never sinned. And so when you are justified, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to you. It's credited to your account Romans 5.19 says, For as, the, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You are seen by the great judge over all of creation as righteous only because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you. And that, brothers and sisters, is a gracious gift. Now, the great issue that Paul was dealing with in his letter to the Galatians, the the, the problem that he was trying to correct was how justification is received by sinners. The Judaizers, they, they would say, yes, yes, justification, yes, it's a gift. But they thought you still had to earn it. You had to add to it by keeping the ceremonial law, those dietary laws. And so because the Gentiles didn't keep the dietary laws, which were a part of the ceremonial laws, The Jews, the Judaizers, that is, wouldn't sit down with them at the table because they were eating unclean things. And to associate with them while eating unclean things, they were becoming unclean people, and the Judaizers thought they would be unclean. How do you receive justification? Well, Paul says that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, justification is received the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. And in that alone, 
He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 30, He will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. Faith is the common denominator. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's faith in Jesus Christ. He says in our passage in Galatians 2, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't do anything to receive justification. The only way to obtain justification is through faith. By believing in Jesus Christ. And the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in a unique way. Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Faith is, is, is the way that you, you lay hold of Jesus Christ. It enables you to grab hold of justification. Without faith, you cannot obtain it. Justification is out of your reach. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way that you can be justified. Not your righteous deeds. Those can't justify you. We've already seen they're filthy rags in God's sight. They're tainted with sin. The only way that you can stand before God and not be condemned is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, robed in His righteousness. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone that you stand justified before God. You cannot be justified in any other way. You cannot add to your justification by your works. Whether it's by keeping the law in your own mind that's there in the Old Testament, but by keeping some new law that really is simply the invention of man. You cannot be justified by it. Now, after you've heard all of this, you might be asking the question, why would God go to all of this trouble in order for us to stand before him? And indeed, it was a lot of trouble, wasn't it? He's put up with the sinfulness of mankind for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But why did he go to all of this trouble? Well, the answer is twofold. First, God is holy, perfectly holy. And second, he loves sinful people like you and me. God is holy. God does not need to be in a relationship with his creatures. He doesn't need to be in a relationship with human beings who've been made in his image. But he wants to be. It's his will to be in a relationship with humans. But he's holy. And we will be burned up by his glory if we come into his presence as sinners. But God loves sinful people like you and me. And so the only way that you could stand before the Holy Lord, the judge of all creation, is for Him to justify you Himself. His perfect holiness is of the essence of His being. He can't just simply ignore the fact that He's holy. And so if you were not justified by God, you would be condemned by Him. He chose to justify you because He loves you. God chose to love you. And therefore, God did what was necessary to enable you to come into His presence and be in relationship with Him. Because of His love for everyone who repents of His sin and believes in Jesus Christ, He has saved you from your sin. And from his wrath. And he's done so 
by sending his only begotten son in the fullness of time. Of sending him to perfectly keep his law, not for his own sake, but for your sake, for my sake. To die on the cross as a sacrifice, not for his sins, but for your sins and my sins, which became his sins. Because he stood in our place. And he stood in our place, brothers and sisters, so that we, so that you and I and all who believe in Jesus Christ could stand before the Lord God of heaven and earth on the day of judgment and have him not as our judge, not as our judge, to have him not as the one who is there to condemn us because of our sins, which rightly we ought to be condemned. We can stand before the God of heaven and earth as our Father who has accepted us as righteous in His sight, who loves us, and who welcomes us into His heavenly kingdom by faith in Christ alone. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That's the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, what good news it is for sinners like us that you, in sending your Son, in in Him living for us and dying in our place and Him being raised again for our justification, what glorious news it is that we are justified, that we have been declared to be righteous. We are grateful for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is credited to our accounts. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would not cheapen your grace by freely sinning, but that out of gratitude for your grace, we would seek, that we would desire, that we would endeavor, that we would try to be obedient to you. Not because you are our slave master, but because you are our father. So we pray, Lord, that because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, that we would desire to be gratefully obedient. Thank you for justifying us. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.